Hello, and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law, economics, and policy. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined, as always, by Richard Epstein, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of law at the New York University Law School. Now, Richard, it's been a while since we last spoke, uh, and a lot's happened since then. First and foremost, Judge Brett Kavanaugh is now Justice Brett Kavanaugh, confirmed uh, to the Supreme Court by a vote of 50 to 48. Now, as soon as Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed, and I guess even a little before that, his critics and critics of originalism in general began to launch preemptive attacks on the court's legitimacy, arguing that the court was losing its legitimacy either because of the accusations against Judge Kavanaugh or because of some theory that the, the court is insufficiently representative of the public as a whole. And so as these debates begin, Richard, I thought it would be good to take a step back and the big picture just ask you, how should we think about the court's legitimacy? Well, you certainly put a lot of things together in one question. Let me see if I could break them out. Uh, first of all, there's no question that the legitimacy of the court has taken a pounding, as so has the legitimacy of the Senate, because the way the confirmation hearing was conducted this last time, everything ran out of control, and it was a fitting irony that the worst offender in the Senate, Senate Dianne Feinstein, is the one who started with the legitimacy charge. Uh, so I think it's a serious charge. Now, what are the serious ways in which to think about it? First, I do think there is a very deep cleavage in the United States now between people who take a liberal position and those who take, roughly speaking, a conservative position. It starts with Roe v. Wade and the question of whether you keep it or whether you remove it. It covers the gun control cases. It covers the Commerce Clause cases. It covers campaign financing, and it covers affirmative action. That's probably 10% or less of the Supreme Court docket, but it's probably 95% of the public interest in the way in which these cases get decided. And when we have had Merrick Garland up the last time round. He was a highly qualified judge. I don't think anybody wanted to dispute that. He was relatively old for these purposes in his 60s, and he was probably to the right of every other Democrat. But on the five issues that I mentioned, he was probably going to side with the other four liberals, which meant that the balance on the Supreme Court would have changed on these key issues. And what the Republicans did is they refused to schedule a hearing, and that was the right way to do it, if you know you're not going to confirm. The hearings give you precious little by way of information. Everybody understands who these people are and what they mean, and all you can do is bloody a reputation engaged in senseless warfare. So I think not having the hearing is the correct thing, and if the Democrats did that when they controlled the Senate uh, with a Republican president, I think there would be nothing one can say to stop that. Indeed, they threatened to do just that back in 2007 and 2008, when that was in fact the uh, situation. Uh, but if it's the other way around, then I think we still don't want to have the nominee at the hearing to be grilled for 30 odd hours. Uh, what the Democrats ought to do, unmask if they want, is they say, we've made up our mind. Uh, there's nothing you can persuade us about Justice Kavanaugh that's going to make him into our kind of guy. Uh, we're going to vote no. But you then spare us all the rest of it. Now, you mentioned two other things, and I think they're worth comment. One is the so-called question about whether or not originalism is or is not an appropriate constitutional philosophy. I mean, it's a kind of ironic question because there's so many versions of originalism today and so many qualifications with respect to the document. I don't think that anybody really cares about originalism as an end in itself. I think they care about the way in which certain philosophical approaches lead to uh, the interpretation on the five key questions that I met before. 
And as to whether or not they wanted to deal with the sexual allegations, uh, the second time around they did it right. There was an FBI report. It was confidential and nobody leaked it. The first time around it was uncorroborated. It was indeed contradicted. And this all came out publicly. Then there were follow-on allegations that were even slimier than the original one perhaps, which were totally fabricated and so forth. I don't think the process can survive that kind of a, a, a talk. And in fact, what happened was the Republicans, I think, quite rightly felt themselves in the position that if they decided to take this nominee down because of the allegations, anybody else they put up would be subject to some other kind of charges, which would be thought to be fatal. And so what you had to do is you just had to meet this head on. It's a really sad situation. But the great tragedy is if you went and looked at Justice Kavanaugh's reputation going into the nomination hearing as of July 1st, 2018, he was regarded as one of the princes, one of the ablest judges on the United States Supreme Court. And nobody ought to be dirtied up in that particular fashion on either party. Um, Merrick Garland has escaped unscathed because, in fact, uh, nobody said anything about his character. And when I actually wrote about this once, I called him Merrick Garland political porn, and I was getting quite distressed about the fact that people took some of his opinions, uh, which I may have disagreed with, but were in the band of reasonable and well-thought-out opinions, and started to make them into caricatures of themselves. And we just don't want that to happen. We don't want everybody to be dirtied up so that by the time they get to the Supreme Court, they're going to have to dig themselves out of a hole. I think that Justice Kavanaugh will have a strong enough performance on the substantive issues, and that the immediate pan pandemonium will uh, subside a little bit, but the danger of a repetition with the next nominee uh, who could well come in the Trump administration is something that we really have to take very hard and have to be able to cool down, slow down the process so that we don't have this kind of a divisive fight again. You know, it's interesting. I, I agree with some of what you said, but I do, I think I disagree with the fundamentals. Now, I mean, of course, obviously at this moment in time, after what I thought was a truly truly atrocious approach to all this by Senator Feinstein. It's hard to say anything nice about the Supreme Court confirmation process. But on the whole, and I think we talked about this on our last discussion, on the whole, I think it's good that the Senate has hearings uh, in general with the nominee in place. If anything, I think it's the last opportunity for the public to really see up close somebody who's about to get life tenure. And I think more importantly than that, for all of the sort of bombast and the and the all the, the political flame throwing, you do get some really interesting discussions, both from the nominee and, and the senators, including oftentimes the senators in opposition. You get really good and useful discussions of what it means to have a court in our Republican form of government. What, what do we mean by stare decisis? What's the right way to interpret the law? In a way, it becomes a very rare but useful civics discussion for the public. Now, obviously, it happens interspersed within uh, character assassination and political pontificating and so on. And so I don't want to make it sound like it's, it's a great thing, but I do think there are great things within the process itself. And so on the whole, I like having the hearings. Now, of course, when the Senate majority knows up front that they are not going to confirm a nominee, then I agree. I think the right thing to do is just not have the hearings and not do it at all. Throughout the Kavanaugh hearings, it was sort of stunning to hear uh, Democrats uh, raise the Merrick Garland issue and suggest that Kavanaugh's rough treatment was payback or it was deserved because of what Republicans did for Garland. You know, the way I saw it, Republicans, their treatment of Gar Garland was straightforward. They announced before he was even nominated that they weren't going to move forward on a nomination. 
when he was nominated, they reiterated that they weren't going to move forward. They never attacked his character. They never attacked him at all. They just said that for, for neutral, um, I mean, neutral relative to Garland, uh, specific uh, reasons, namely judicial ideology and the upcoming presidential election, they weren't going to move forward. I thought, if anything, Republicans treated Garland very, very well. Now, to see that then held up as the epitome of injustice and to suggest that it somehow merited the, the full character assassination of Judge Kavanaugh, I thought was pretty stunning. But it, back to the original question about the court's legitimacy, I also have a bit of a disagreement with you on that, too, because it seems to me that the Constitution creates a political process for appointing judges, right? nominated and appointed by a political president, um, confirmed or rejected by a political Senate. It's hard for me to imagine anything in, a, in that political process affecting the court's legitimacy. Um, I, in fact, I think the, the process will be inevitably political so long as the court is making significant value judgments for the country, which, of course, was Justice Kennedy or Scalia's his point in his dissent in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. It seems to me that we should expect the, the confirmation process to be deeply political. And then in the court's legitimacy, legitimacy, legitimacy ultimately turns on the way that those judges conduct themselves once in office. Well, I agree with all of that, but I, I don't think that the hearings give you a particular insight uh, on what they do is they diminish somebody like Judge Kavanaugh because he essentially loses his cool um, when he has to confront the sexual allegations, charges of sexual misconduct and so forth. Uh, that doesn't help anything. I'm perfectly happy to have the senators debate these things in the absence of the nominee. I'm happy to have it happen at any other time. Uh, the, the, the problem about having a senator in rather the nominee in the debate is they're always playing rope-a-dope. They cannot talk about anything which is going to pre-commit them to a case that is likely to come before the Supreme Court. So they're always hedging their bets. But if you have Republicans and Democrats teeing off on the legitimacy of Roe v. Wade, for example, I think that could be perfectly instructive. And I don't mind it. Um, I don't think it's going to change anybody's mind because, as I said, I think what's happened now is that the lines are really drawn. If you looked at this process, say, 60 years ago, I'm thinking at the time when Potter Stewart became nominated. And as a 14-year-old, I was actually interested in the Supreme Court. And there it was on the front page of the New York Times. It was a four-inch story on the lower left-hand column, least significant column of the thing, because the process was a political process at that time, but it had nothing like this. There have been political nominees. Uh, uh, Judge Parker, when he was struck down in 1930 because of his decision on yellow door contracts, was a classic illustration of that. Getting rid of Harold Carswell was, of course, a, a godsend. Uh, the treatment that was given to um, Clement Hainsworth was, I thought, out outrageous under the circumstances. That was Democratic stuff. And then, of course, it starts with uh, Bork and Thomas in 1987 and 1991. I thought it was an era of relatively good feelings, relatively good feelings with both the Alito and Roberts appointment and certainly with the Sotomayor and Kagan appointment. I mean, there were huge numbers of dissenting votes, and I think that's absolutely par for the course now. But it was nothing like what happened first with Gorsuch and then in spades what happened with Kavanaugh. So I think let them debate. I just think having the nominee there trying to duck questions and defend his character and 
keep his composure, uh, doesn't improve the quality of the debate. And I'm always depressed at what I think to be the generally low-level quality of the debates coming out of the senators. My reaction to some of them is if you actually put them in a serious intellectual environment where they had to deal with people who knew about the subject, they would turn out to have very thin knowledge. They depend a lot on their aides in order to ask these questions, but they haven't given them the kind of thought that they really need. And their general intellectual weaknesses on these kinds of issues are explainable in some cases. There are some exceptions, of course, to the rule. But these people are filled in so many different ways that the thought that they're going to be able to summon the intellectual coherence to do a debate over originalism or any other constitutional issue strikes me as a little far-fetched. I'm certainly willing to have the debates, but I don't expect to get a huge amount out of them. Well, we tend to get the senators we deserve, right? The, the, the Senate is an elected body, and it's it's you know fairly reflective of the mm-hmm. political mood of the country. In some ways, I think the questions that the senators ask and the accusations they throw, for better and for worse, are pretty reflective of how the public as a whole, I think, sees the court. I mean, am I wrong about that, do you think? No, I, I, think, I think you're right about that. I mean, I would have one qualification to it, Adam, which yeah. is when you vote on people, you're voting on them for a dozen different issues of which Supreme Court nominations are only one. And, sure. and a lot of stuff what's driving them is, you know, what do you think about trade? Uh, uh, what do you think about climate change? What do you think about environmental law generally? What do you think about civil rights? And, you know, I think that the the division on all of these issues has become much cleaner than it used to be. I don't think on any particular issue there's any overlap between any Republican and any Democrat. And I think that is just going to continue with the polarization. I think the public, ironically, is less polarized than the Senate turns out to be. But if you think about it this way, every state being 60-40 one way or the other, uh, but the 60 is sort of adamant, uh, even if the public taken as a whole may be something in the mix, uh, the new politics drives you to the extremes rather than to the median vote. And that's going to reflect itself in the Senate, and therefore it's going to reflect itself in the debates over the Senate nominees. Well, of course, I, your point about polarization is right, and it would be worth pointing out that our colleague Morris Fiorina has really written a lot in the last several years on the difference between political polarization among elected officials and polarization among the public and, and the fact that the public isn't nearly as polarized as elected officials. I guess my question went more, or what I had in mind was more of the fact that the sorts of questions that senators ask a nominee, I think they're pretty close to the sorts of questions that the public as a whole would ask the nominee or, or, or would ask questions they would ask about the court, right? The public at large is not a bunch of legal scholars uh, for better and for worse. And the public at large tends to think of these institutions perhaps a little differently than we as law professors and legal scholars do. And I I always think that's important to keep in mind um, from my own work as I try to think about the court and what it's doing. You know, as we're going forward now, I think all attention already is on actually not Justice Kavanaugh, but Chief Justice Roberts and how he will steer the court, although he's the first to admit that he doesn't really have a steering wheel. He uses the line that, you know, you can't pull the reins on the court too tightly because you'll find they're not connected to anything. But still, all, all attention is focused on all attention is focused on Roberts and and uh, and and what he might do. He said when he was a nominee, he was hoping for more consensus, smaller decisions with broader majorities. We've seen a lot of that, although of course we've also seen a lot of five-four decisions. 
If you were to give Ju- Chief Justice Roberts advice on what he should do with the court going forward, uh, what would it be? Well, I think he's got one vote amongst nine and maybe has a little bit of persuasive power by virtue of the fact that he's the chief of the operation. But I really don't think that there's much that he or anybody can do to persuade the eight other justices to change their mind by virtue of the highness of his position. He has become the centrist judge. If I had to rate where these things went now, I would have said that Kennedy was a little bit further to the left than Roberts, and Roberts is a little bit further to the left than Kavanaugh. Uh, But uh, three more conservative judges are Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas. That's the way I would line them up. I just don't think you're going to change it. Remember, Roberts, in fact, was the swing vote, not Kennedy, in the case having to do with the ACA and with respect to the contraceptive mandate. Um, I do think, in effect, he has the following judicial strategy, which the others may not agree with, but he says the Supreme Court is not here to blow up uh, institutions that have widespread support in Congress. And even if the support isn't widespread, but are comprehensive things that have worked their way into the fabric of American law. So he was not going to strike down the the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, and he wasn't going to strike down the uh, situation with respect to the funding of the federal government in King B. Verbal and so forth. And I think he's going to keep to that position. I don't know whether he'll be able to persuade the others. My guess is that uh, Kavanaugh probably is more closely aligned with him on this issue than is Gorsuch. Uh, The one area where I don't think you're going to see that position prevail is going to be on the administrative deference question, the Chevron doctrine, and whether or not courts ought to defer to the administrative agencies and so forth. I think Gorsuch on that is really very firm in the belief that judicial questions should be decided by courts. I have to say I agree with him on that particular issue. I think Kavanaugh is inclined in that direction. Um, I think all the four liberals are not. And I think that the Chief Justice is somewhere in between on these things. Um, He has, you know, his own particular points of view. He does not have as far as I can tell, a general, coherent, overarching philosophy about these matters. Um, But I'm not sure that any of the other justices do, and I'm not even sure that I have one, uh, given the huge heterogeneity of the kinds of issues that they start to face. It's one thing to be an originalist, a small government guy, and so forth, but how all these things play out in the context of particular cases, kind of tricky because sometimes you get up with surprise. So I think, in effect, what's going to happen is we're going to have the same kind of atomistic Supreme Court, idiosyncratic decisions by individual justices, sometimes an odd switch in alliances, uh, the tendency will be a bit further to the right, because I think Kavanaugh stands like that relative to Kennedy. The dynamics will be exactly the same in terms of interactions. The outcomes will differ as a function of the composition of the court and its new member. The Chevron issue you alluded to, I think, is a good case study for this. I agree with you completely that Gorsuch seems to have profound doubts about just the basic basic premises of judicial deference at all. He seems to think that it really does raise questions about judicial independence and judicial duty. And in that respect, he seems to align or pair up pretty well with Justice Thomas, uh, with folks like Philip Hamburger and his book, Is Administrative Law Unlawful? And, and as you mentioned with your approach, um, I, I, in reading Kavanaugh's opinions, in the run-up to his his confirmation hearing, and and I was I actually had the pleasure of testifying on the last day of the hearings in favor of Kavanaugh on the administrative law issues. I came away from that concluding that that, that <clears throat> there might be a gap between Kavanaugh and Gorsuch in that respect. Kavanaugh, at least on the D.C. Circuit, and of course all things can change when you get to the Supreme Court, but at least on the D.C. Circuit, Kavanaugh was comfortable 
working within the Chevron framework, at least as it was being modified along the way by, say, Chief Justice Roberts and King v. Burwell and so on. And so we might see Kavanaugh try to more of a mend-it-don't-end-it approach to Chevron. And with Chief Justice Roberts, they might be able to get Alito, Kagan, and Breyer and, and make some major reforms to Chevron while still working within the framework. And that gets me back to the Chief Justice. I, I wonder whether he will try to cobble together more uh, majorities by, by or more centrist majorities by, by relying on narrower decisions. In that respect, quite frankly, I, I would welcome it. I think that it would be now is a very important moment for the court to speak in a more unified voice, trying to bring together majorities across the nominal partisan lines wherever possible. Um, there's a couple of really good new biographies coming out right now on Chief Justice Marshall. And of course, he was famous for getting the court to speak in a unified voice whenever possible, of course, through the, usually through his force of personality. Um, but it was important then, and it may be important to us again now. But of course, that would require Roberts and the others to occasionally trim sails where advocates on both sides of these questions Questions might be very disappointed with a with narrower, less uh, less fundamental decisions. Well, I think there are a couple of places in which you could try to do that. One is there's this thing floating about about a area where you're talking with core fundamental values under a statute. Chevron deference is inappropriate, and so there's some vague idea that the fundamental parts of it remain a matter of judicial interpretation, and the more marginal or peripheral parts do not. How that actually is operationalized is going to be, I think, difficult, but at least it's out there. The other thing that you can do is ask yourself how ambiguous do you have to be before you're ambiguous. And, you know, this is a huge problem. Uh, right. I think, in effect, many of the cases in which people find deep ambiguity, I think, to be relatively clear. And if it turns out that the Supreme Court is willing to turn a slightly stronger uh, searchlight on these terms and come out with more things being uh, clear than they used to be, then all of a sudden you're in Chevron stage one and you don't have the deference issue at all. So to give you one example, right now the court has to grapple over this wirehouse case and the question is to whether or not keeping a habitat um, uh, that you may or may not convert to use for the protection of a tree frog some 50 years down the road, it's essential for the preservation to have it now. I think the answer to that is you cannot say something is essential if you're not about to put it into effect immediately, if you haven't funded a budget for it and so forth. So I would say that the deference that was given on that issue by the lower court in the Fifth Circuit was probably incorrect, and what they should do is to say no. Uh, you cannot say that habitat is essential if at the time that you make the judgment you know that it's unsuited for the things that you want and you haven't put a budget in place and you haven't put a timeline in place. I think that is a perfectly defensible way and once you start doing it with terms like essential, um, it turns out that you may be able to find other ways to do it as well. Uh, but if you're going to continue with the attitude that Justice Stevens had back in 1984, ladies and gentlemen, I'm looking for ambiguity and if I look hard enough I will find it and then I will defer to this Republican administration, but have Brand X at the back 
of it meaning that the next administration, without explanation, can change the result, even after a court has found the thing that's been cleared in the opposite direction. That's where I think one has to really work. So I would think that Brandex is that. And remember, you mentioned Justice Thomas in this connection. He was one of the offenders, as far as I'm concerned, with respect to Chevron and a lot of the deference doctrines uh, 15, 20 years ago. I think his attitude indeed has changed, and I certainly hope that's the case. I think that's right. And we only have a few minutes left, but there's one one last issue that I, I did want to bring us back to. Um, we keep talking about the, the internal dynamic within the court and the, the dynamic at the federal level between the court and the Senate and so on. But the other important dynamic is the relationship between the Supreme Court and the lower courts and the role of the Supreme Court in managing and overseeing and reviewing the work of the lower courts. And one of the really interesting dynamics we've seen in the last couple of years, and now we're seeing it again. Uh, and by last couple of years, I mean since about the moment President Trump was elected, is we've seen a flurry of lower court decisions pushing back very, very aggressively against the Trump administration on issues like immigration and so on. Uh, and then we've seen the Supreme Court come in either with uh, injun- or with stays of lower court decisions or with quick review of those decisions, and we've seen the court sort of push back against the lower courts and try to moderate their approach to judicial review of this administration. We've seen that, uh, as I said, in immigration. We're now seeing it in the lawsuits over uh, the Wilbur Ross's Commerce Department's census approach involving questions of citizenship. We've seen it in, in, in uh, lawsuits envi- involving environmentalist claims. And so, Richard, what are your thoughts on all of this? Well, I think, in effect, this is one of the most serious problems. The Supreme Court uh, intervenes in most areas only erratically, and while the cat is away, the mice will play. Uh, So if you go back to some of the takings decisions back in the late uh, 80s and the early 90s, the Supreme Court seemed to toughen up on a whole variety of things having to do with exactions of one kind or another, and lower courts have largely ignored everything that it has said. Supreme Court doesn't review. The lower court precedents then take precedent over the Supreme Court precedent, and there's no change that has happened. Uh, Basically, what's happened is lower courts believe that rational basis of very little scrutiny is all that you need to show between the the exaction that you wish to pose, impose upon somebody, build us a library and a permit, let us build an apartment house, and, you know, the Supreme Court just hasn't come back. Right now, there are two issues. One is the uh, Wilbur Ross question, and as far as I'm concerned, how can anybody deny the relevance to the question of whether or not somebody is a citizen on the census? A citizenship determines votes, it determines eligibility to all sorts of programs, ability to run for various kinds of offices. It has to be relevant, and the question question I would ask is, why did they take it off the census after 1950 rather than why they put it on? And I think when Judge Furman said, I think the administration is in bad faith at the lower court level, you really do want to stay that particular situation, and they stayed the deposition. This is an issue that is of such great importance. It's a legal question. I think you want to get it up through the judicial system very rapidly. Uh, the other case is the situation where a group of 12 or 15 students or children came and said, we have a special interest in global warming, why that should be the case, I do not know, and that we wish to enjoin the administration and to reorient climate policy in order to get rid of the harmful effects of global warming. And the trial judge and the Ninth Circuit would not intervene in order to stop those depositions until the legal question could be finally resolved by a higher court. 
uh, there was a very powerful petition drafted by the Solicitor General's office, Noel Francisco, to the Supreme Court. Uh, Chief Justice gave a temporary stay. I would like to see that stay made permanent. I think in general, it's a very bad precedent when you have really wacky theories out there, which nobody has tried before, and obvious objections against it for a willful district court judge to try to keep the thing cabined up, force expensive depositions, try to create all sorts of complications for the current administration. Now, this is not to say that I agree with everything that Trump has done. Uh, I do on both of these cases happen to agree with him. I tend not to agree with him, certainly on the issue having to do with gender rights and all the things of that sort, um, or with the immigration stuff. And so, but I think in effect, if you're running an administration, generally speaking, if it's a profound question of principle, you should be able to get an authoritative judicial determination of the lawfulness of your action before you have to go through the enormous expense of scrambling to put together some kind of trial where there'll be all sorts of stays and temporary injunctions, much of which will turn out, I think, to be unjustified. Well, hanging around this entire issue is the related issue of nationwide injunctions and the power mm-hmm. of one district court judge to enjoin mm-hmm. the federal government nationwide. I'll be writing a bit on that coming up. But unfortunately, we don't have time to discuss, so we'll have to come back to it. And the other case we didn't get to, but maybe we'll get back to it when the court issues a decision, is the Gundy case involving what's called the non-delegation doctrine, the doctrine that limits the Congress's ability to uh, to, to delegate effectively open-ended powers to the executive branch. There was an interesting case a couple of weeks ago involving the sexual the Sex Offenders Registration and Notification Act yeah. and whether that delegates open-ended power to the attorney general, but maybe we'll have a decision uh, before long and we can discuss it on the podcast. Well, I but think we I guess spend at least one minute on it now. Well, please Just go ahead. The, go well, ahead. I mean, go ahead. The, the question, delegation is a nightmare, but this was an extraordinary delegation. You decide, attorney general, whether this statute applies to people who committed sexual offenses before the passage of the statute. And what was so extraordinary about that is you can do that by legislation. It's not an administrative nightmare. And there was everybody from the left to the right on this issue basically taking the position that you can't give this amount of power to somebody down below. And the differences amongst the various groups are many of them like broad general delegations on other issues, and some of them don't. I tend to be moderate on, I would say, the delegation issues. I certainly see the necessity for it in many cases. I do think the Supreme Court will strike this particular delegation down. Uh, The real question is going to be just how broad an opinion it will write. End of statement. Well, I'll say, you know, I listened to the oral argument and I didn't see a whole lot of support uh, for a broad decision against the statute in this case. Maybe there'll be a narrow one, but a lot of the justices seem pretty comfortable in finding what the doctrine calls an intelligible principle within the broad contours of the surrounding statutory provisions. I think it showed how how little content there is in the so-called intelligible principle standard. But of course, as Justice Scalia and others always warned, it's hard to see what sort of manageable line courts can draw in this area uh, to, to, to actually stop unconstitutional delegations of the legislative power, um, but, but, but in a way that's, that, that, that doesn't just become the court striking down laws it doesn't like. There's another non-delegation case coming up right now through the district courts. I believe Alan Morrison, the longtime uh, public yeah. interest litigator, has brought it, yeah. and it's a non delegation challenge to the trade statute, the tariff statutes that give the executive branch such broad authority 
to impose new tariffs based on national security considerations. I mean, as with every, all the other categories that are being scrambled by the current political environment, it is interesting to see these these issues, these non-delegation issues being brought you know, against the tariff statute, against the sex offender statute, not by your traditional uh, conservative litigators, but by other uh, other legal interests. And maybe that will create some interesting I decisions. think there's going to be strange bedfellows going forward on these cases. I do believe that Trump has abused the national security authority when he wants to say rolled steel from Canada is something that we're going to keep out. And I think a lot of people believe he's gone over the line, and I think there is an intelligible principle there. Let me just mention one thing. Uh, the intelligible principle phrase was from a case called Hampton, handed down by Chief Justice Taft, who had been a president. And the grand issue in that case was how you make a series of technical adjustments on a tariff on German goods, which would allow you to raise it between from four to six cents per unit. Um, that's rather different from what we're talking about today. Uh, it's common when people hear a phrase like that to rip it out of its context. And if you look at the facts, it will give you a very different view as to how you want to think about these things. That's but very I think true. Going, is that right? Uh, I guess so. I guess we'll leave it at that. I do want to say, as always, I encourage our listeners uh, to check out uh, the other podcast produced by our Hoover Institution colleagues. There are too many to mention, but, uh, but, but don't forget Uncommon Knowledge with Peter Robinson, Econ Talk with Russ Roberts, uh, Area 45 with Bill Whalen, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hansen. There's a new podcast called Cyberspectives on new issues in cybersecurity. And then last but certainly not least, of course, The Libertarian with our friend Richard Epstein. Well, Richard, as always, it's been a pleasure, and we'll talk again soon. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.